Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Katie Welch, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of Rare Beauty. That's the beauty products company founded by superstar musician and actress Selena Gomez. Rare Beauty sells its products online and in Sephora retail stores, and importantly, Katie does almost no traditional marketing. Rare is a true internet brand that depends on social media strategy, influencer marketing, and community to drive sales. Specifically, the enormous community around Selena Gomez, who, again, is an international superstar with a fandom of her own. This kind of marketing is essentially new. Yes, there have been celebrity endorsements for a long time, but famous people making their own products and companies and then using their online reach to launch and grow those businesses is a combination of art and commerce that is 10, 15 years old at the most. Rihanna's Fenty Beauty is only five years old, but it's redefined the industry and helped make her a billionaire. Some of the first big successes came from the Kardashian Jenners, including Kylie Cosmetics, which was founded in 2015, and Kim Kardashian's Skims, which was only founded in 2019. So I've been really curious about how these businesses work, how they reach their audiences and their customers, how CMOs like Katie even measure success, whether being the marketing executive for a super online celebrity-driven business feels different than being a traditional marketing person, and honestly, whether the ever-present risk of weird things happening online make her plan differently. I also wanted to get Katie's sense of how things are changing on platforms like Instagram as more and more young people switch to TikTok and Apple's ad tracking policies make measuring the effectiveness of online advertising even harder. After all, it's ad money from people like Katie that pays the bills at these platforms. Her view might be the most important of all. Now, Katie's the right person for this conversation. In addition to being the CMO of Rare Beauty, she is also a TikToker. She has a pretty popular TikTok account where she shares career advice and mentors some of her audience. If you think online communities are the future of marketing, Katie's living it. And as she will tell you, she has sold a bunch of lipstick that way. I've been selling lipsticks for a long time. We still are. We're just working, selling lipsticks. Here I am selling lipsticks. We're a beauty brand. We sell lipsticks. We create lipsticks. One note, we talk about funnels a lot. That's just how marketers talk about taking potential customers from even knowing about a brand to actually making a sale. You start at the top of the funnel with lots of people being aware of your brand. You go down the funnel to a small percentage of those people actually buying something. We'll link a picture in the show notes so you'll see what we mean. 
This one's a lot of fun. Katie's very direct, very honest, and her enthusiasm for what she's doing comes through. Also, we talk about Robert Smith and the Cure. Okay, Katie Welch, CMO of Rare Beauty. Here we go. Katie Welch, you are the Chief Marketing Officer of Rare Beauty. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really exciting to talk to you. To start, tell our audience, what is Rare Beauty? Rare Beauty is a beauty brand created and founded by Selena Gomez. And it's a brand that she had an idea to start and pulled together a team of other beauty industry pros. We launched it in September of 2020, but not only did we launch the brand, but with Rare Beauty, we also launched Rare Impact, which is a division of the company that works to make a difference in the world, specifically around destigmatizing mental health. We have, as part of that, also created the Rare Impact Fund, where a percentage of sales will go to the fund as well as traditional fundraising. The brand is sold exclusively at Sephora around the world. We actually just launched in Brazil, as well as on our website. So launching a brand in September 2020, I'm assuming people have guessed this, that's the middle of the pandemic. So I want to talk about Mm -hmm. that. I want to talk about uh, sales, uh, direct-to-consumer, and in retail. In this environment, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Just real quick, though, when you say division of the company, how big is this company? Do you have like a 1,000-person rare impact uh, it, it really, see, I'm a marketer, so when yeah. I can choose words to make it seem <laughs> like we have teams of people. No, we do have a team of, uh, is there a team of three people who work on Rare Impact specifically? And the total company is, I think, almost to 80 people. Were you at 80 when you launched? Has that been growing? Give me that little formation story here. It's been growing. I, sh- I'm, I apologize. I don't know exactly how many we were when we launched, but I started in 2019 with only a handful of people and we were the first people to join the company and I and I met Selena and worked closely with her to develop the mission vision values and really understand why she wanted to start this company and this brand at this time and then figure out how to launch it of course not knowing in 2019 what the future held for us and <laughs> had a lot of um, dare I say pivots what everyone else has said but my goodness did we experience real versions of pivots. One thing I think about all the time, especially with beauty brands that are connected to celebrities, is that the business of being a celebrity is harder than ever. If you were a celebrity in the 80s and you made a hit TV show or had a hit single, you might collect high-paying residuals off that content for the rest of your life. The TV networks would syndicate it, the radio would play your song, and you would collect a lot of income from whatever you were in. That business has really changed. It's gone away. You see a lot of celebrities moving to spaces where they're like, we have to sell things to people. Those businesses have to scale. And then eventually one day they get sold for billions of dollars on their own. Is that part of the motivation here for Selena? Is it something else? She posted a post on Instagram about the beauty myth in an incredibly heartfelt way because she was so upset that the media and other industries were commenting on the way she looked. And she thought, this is making me feel terrible. And if it's making me feel terrible, like how can I do, what can I do to sort of stop that? Like, what is this sort of standard of perfection that I'm supposed to be living up to when I have, she had makeup artist, she has hairstylist, she's a beautiful, (laughs) incredible, with and without makeup, she's beautiful and she felt beautiful on the inside. But if other people were making her feel bad about herself and her self-worth, what could she do about it? And she said, is there a way that I could sort of make a difference from the inside out? 
And at the same time, she's been very open and honest about her personal mental health journey. It's something that she wants to make a difference within in that world of destigmatizing. So both creating this sort of warm and welcoming environment around celebrating yourself and your own standards of beauty and making a difference within the industry from the inside out, as well as what could she do to make a difference within mental health. That was why she wanted to do this. She knows she's not a product developer. She's not a beauty marketer. And so she found a team of people to help her bring this vision to life. She's incredibly involved from the product development standpoint, as far as sort of her inspiration. She's really involved with me on the marketing side and sort of the creative concepts that come to life, the images that we put out, the words that we use. So that was the the impetus, the reason for doing it. And it's the same question that I asked her when I first met her. And she's, first of all, when I met her, the first thing she did was, was hug me. And she just has this superpower of connecting with people. And I was sort of struck back, like, gosh, here's this mega celebrity. And she's just so kind and like heartfelt and cool and normal. And I felt like I'd known her forever. And I said, why do you want to do this? And she said, I, I want to create a space where people feel welcome in the beauty industry. And that right there struck me as something so different. I've worked in beauty for a long time and the emotions that beauty brands try to evoke. <laughs> I, I'm a, I love, I mean, listen, I am a beauty junkie at heart. So self-expression, empowerment. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I love all of the emotions that brands will stand for. But when she said welcome, I thought that is actually different. Like not a lot of brands say, come sit with us. So that plus getting to know her and knowing that she actually is that manifest, like she is a welcoming person. It, to me, it felt like something really different. Yeah. I mean, it's a business podcast. If the answer was, we just wanted to make a lot of money. A lot of people come on the show and like, we want to make a lot of money. So I, I, I always just ask that at the beginning. No, but you know what? If she had said that, if she had said, I want to make a lot of money, I would have been able to see right through it. And I, I can't do my job that way, if that's the case. And I wouldn't have wanted to join. I just think that that, that to me is like, uh, it's a question about culture, right? Is the culture over time is becoming worth less and less, which I think is a one kind of problem. And you just see this kind of reflection of, well, how do we, how do we use this to, to actually generate revenue to make more culture and the connection between commerce and culture is like really fascinating to me. So I, I wanted to ask that to begin with. I mean, you could think like she didn't maybe need to start a beauty brand, but it's just been something she has a platform and she has a, yeah. a voice that can make a difference. And it's one that does. What was her pitch to you? So wh where were you at in 2019? How'd you meet and what was her pitch? I was working for The Honest Company. I was the general manager of Honest Beauty. And I met an individual on her team. I met our current CEO. He said, I have something you might be interested in. I'd like you to meet a group of people. And the rest was history. From my point of view, honestly, it seemed like such a once-in-a-life opportunity. I'm a creative person. I love storytelling. To be able to work with someone like Selena, who had such a vision, to be able to say, okay, let's start this from scratch, That you don't get a chance to do that too often. So... That seemed like a no-brainer. Being on the founding team is fun, I have found. I have not left this founding team. I only got the one data point, but it's been fun. Um, <laughs> you said you have a CEO, you're the CMO. What's the operating structure of 80 people? Are we all just waiting for emails from Selena and executing? or <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> no, no. What's interesting about this structure, it's the most collaborative structure I have ever worked in hands down. And I've worked at a handful of founder-led founder businesses. So we have a CEO. We also have a chief product development officer. We have a chief digital officer. We have myself. 
We have a chief sales officer. She's our primary contact with our retailer. Chief financial officer, head of operations, head of HR. So it's all of those departments and we all work incredibly closely together. And how do you, this is the decoder question, how do you make decisions? Okay. Oftentimes it's gut. (laughs) I've been selling lipsticks for a long time. That's the best answer we've ever gotten. (laughs) Oftentimes it's gut. Is that, (laughs) it is. Oftentimes it's gut. Honestly, the best answer. It's gut because uh, I am so close to the industry. I try to stay, I'm obviously not an 18, I wish sometimes I think I'm an 18 year old. I'm not an 18 year old, but I try to stay very close to our target audience. I try to really understand the brand. So all of the things, all of the factors that go into a decision, I try to really understand it and weigh everything. Uh, so usually my gut goes one way or the other. However, at this company, for the for honestly, more than any other company, it's a real partnership. And I have come to rely on my colleagues so much and we work so well together. So it may be a marketing decision, but I will turn to, well, maybe, maybe not the chief financial officer. Don't tell him that. But I could turn to our head of product. I could turn to our head of digital to really weigh all the options and talk it through. And I think it's because we were all part of this founding team and we all work so closely with Selena on sort of her vision and understand her ethos and like how, how we want to bring things to life. Things aren't in a silo. And honestly, when I first started, that was not tough, but it, man, was that, that was a learning lesson. I was so used to hitting the ground running, like, yep, we got to do this. Let's do this. Go. But I had to take a step back. I'm like, okay, let's weigh everything. Let's talk to sell. Let's talk to my partners. And, but I think it's made it all, it's all for the better. So just unpack that little, that tiny little example, right? You're going to make a marketing decision. I want to understand what kinds of decisions those are. I'm going to turn to my head of digital and almost all of your marketing is digital marketing. So I just want to like unpack that tiny little example. What's a marketing decision that you might make? And why would a head of digital have input on that one? Let's think about like what are our brand values statement? What are our brand values? What is our brand mission, vision, um, sort of the co- more of the copy, the language that's going to go on the website? This is something that I could have worked directly with Selena, but we wanted to make sure that the entire leadership team, the entire company at the time, the company was so small, was on the same page. So our chief digital officer may be running our website in, in our D2C business or our chief product development officer. She may be developing these like incredibly cool products, but I want to make sure that everyone's on the same page with those types of sort of bright, really fundamental brand building decisions. So it's an 80 person company. How much of that is your team? 24, 23 or so. Wow. And so how have you structured your marketing department? It includes creative in the beauty industry. The creative teams are always there's so much that needs to get done, so much, not just content, but campaigns, launches, visual merchandising. So it's a sizable creative team. We have a brand and product marketing team, a consumer marketing group that oversees through digital and social and community. We have uh, PR and influencer marketing, which is a huge part of beauty and within creative is copy. And then finally, social impact. And that's the division of the company that works to make a difference in the world, the three individuals who are on rare impact. That's amazing. Tell me about the, the sort of split between PR and influencer marketing and social marketing, because there's a world in which they're all the same thing, but you've split them up. Okay. So in, in beauty, there is a huge segment of creators who are passionate about beauty products. Yes, they could be reviewing products, but they're reviewing, they're creating looks. They are the ones driving the conversation around beauty today. So 
our traditional PR teams will do traditional media relations, maybe thought leadership pieces, maybe product reviews, traditional media, but in beauty, so much of the conversation is driven through content creators. So we, this team works to build relationships. We really value beauty creators and their opinions and our relationships with them. So we're all talking and texting and DMing, myself included. Our CEO loves that. We, Selena love. we're all just big content creator fans. So, so much of that is in the sort of the PR world. And then within social, that's our community. Not that some of these creators are not rare beauty fans, but in social, that's our Instagram, our TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, so on. They're managing that. And then is in addition to that, that community management team, that social team, we've gotten to know that community in a way that I think has, has seemed quite different. Once quarantine hit, we started doing Zoom calls with our community to try to get to know them. And now it's evolved to in-person events. So whether it's an event at a Sephora or we just went on a hike the other day with a handful of our community members. So it, it gets back to that warm, welcoming environment and that brand that Selena wanted to create. So we're doing that, whether it's you're a beauty creator and we are doing hosting a dinner to get to know the brand or to get to know one another, or we're doing a hike or something with our own community uh, to get to know them. They're non-traditional marketing techniques, but I do think it's something that it all stems back to the brand and what we're trying to build and how we how we bring that to life. So it strikes me just listening to all that, you call it kind of non-traditional, but that is becoming more and more traditional. I don't know that anyone, even a celebrity, could have launched a brand like this and gotten to market in the way that celebrities can do that now without the benefit of social marketing. Do you see that shift that the push towards social is actually the main way to market a product and it has actually enabled businesses to exist? Like, has it enabled rare beauty to exist? Oh, 100%. How so? I mean, I, 20 years ago or however many years ago, you know, we would push out a marketing message and you would have a traditional media plan and you would have a sort of this one dimensional target to whom you were trying to reach and you were marketing to. That was it. It was flat. You'd push those messages out. But now it's really a two-way conversation. And I know for many people, that's like, that sounds obvious, but I don't know that a lot of brands are really, really doing it. I do think beauty does it well because it's sort of a high-touch product. It's evolved into that way. We do do some digital advertising. We run Facebook, Instagram ads, but I don't see that as the most powerful part of the marketing mix. It really is PR and, con and influencer marketing, in my opinion, and social and our community marketing. But we try to take it to another level. We try to do it in a more personal way. Like we'll post on Instagram about, let's say UGC, user-generated content. Someone's wearing a lipstick. You post the photo. That's not groundbreaking. But we try to take it a step further and say, okay, this is Katie in our community. She's wearing whatever lipstick kind words lipstick in the shade humble. And then we will take it a further question and ask the community member something about themselves. So we get to know them so that our community gets to know one another. We like to celebrate why people are unique and rare. Why not try and do that in all aspects of our social? I want to come back to that, that sort of Facebook marketing piece, because a lot of direct to consumer brands have, have struggled as Facebook and Apple have gone to war, but let's put a, a just like, hold on to that for one second. Um, I just want to ask one more thing about influencer marketing. So in my corner of the journalism universe, right, like tech journalists like me, we're very precious. We have like our ethics statements and I'll yell about the background policy. And then there are influencers and we're not quite the same. We all get along. But I know some beauty editors and I've read a bunch of like meta beauty pieces about how the beauty journalism industry 
has kind of just become an influencer marketing industry, right? And there's there's some blurry lines there. Do you see that shift? Is that something that you think, okay, we can take advantage of this, or is it it would be better if there remained that kind of split between the influencers and the industry at large? Like, how do you feel about that? And one's not better than the other. I think what I love, there are just teams of people who love beauty products. And that is what, it's what I've always loved is why I love doing my, the job that I have. Like if I was an 18 year old or a 14 year old, whatever, I would love to be able to say, oh my gosh, someone's going to teach me how to use this eyeshadow palette, whether I turn to YouTube, TikTok, or an issue of Vogue magazine. I just think there's more content to consume for those who love beauty. And I think some people are still going to read Vogue magazine, which is awesome. I still do. I, I think some people are just going to stick to TikTok, which is what I also do. <laughs> so in my opinion, it's just, there's just more people talking about makeup, which is cool. What's great is there's so many different points of view. I mean, perhaps when I was growing up, there was just one point of view. And now the points of view come from so many different people, so many different backgrounds, so many different ways of self-expression. I think it's cool. I think it's great. I embrace it all. You know, it's up to the individual cons- reader, viewer, consumer, listener, whomever, to take it all in and determine who they want to follow, believe in, you know, hold their opinion as higher. But I don't think there's one is better than the other. I think it's all exciting. Is that a little Pollyanna of me? I know it's a little Pollyanna of me. I'm from the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's cool. So am I. So that's good. We vibe (laughs) on that level. But I think think what's really interesting is the future of marketing looks like a lot of partnerships and maybe not a lot of distance. Right. And I think that's just really interesting to hear people who are on the forefront of collapsing that distance. I think for the future of marketing, it makes it difficult. What it used to be, it was sort of easy to figure out how the news was delivered or how you could launch a new product. It was simpler, to be honest. Now there's just so many audiences to whom you could reach and the list never ends. And that is tough. And I think then the tough part is saying to the team, like, okay, (laughs) shut it down. Like you, (laughs) you could do this all day long. Because there are so many points of entry to find beauty news and however you want to market that, whether it's paid, earned, owned, whatever. When you say things like, okay, we got to make decisions. This is working. This is not. I'm guessing that the metric you're actually using there is sales, right? I mean, you're the CMO. Your job is to use these levers to increase sales. It's not, you're not just trying to grow a TikTok audience for the sake of it. You know, I think it's just like the new marketing funnel. Like does our TikTok drive sales directly? Maybe, maybe during a launch time, but sometimes it's someone else on TikTok who could be driving sales. It's still tough to gauge, but what I think is cool about our TikTok, it's back to that relationship building with our community. Whether there are internal content creators are telling stories around product point of difference, how to use a product, product new, it's product just launched, or even just sort of inside jokes. They started putting googly eyes on our products and creating characters. And when we launched in Europe, taking these characters around the world, people loved it. They were stories. It's a way that they were able to sort of follow along on the TikTok trends and sort of bring to life TikTok trends in a way that was relevant to rare beauty. Now, does that sell a lip gloss? Maybe not. But does it make people (laughs) think that this brand is warm and welcoming? Yeah, totally. Everything doesn't have to be for sales. So, But is that the main metric or is there a secondary metric? Are you thinking about like okay, we've got googly eyes on lipsticks in Paris, which by the way sounds amazing. Like, <laughs> oh God, how can that be the headline? What, like the best status update in any, <sighs> in any in any stand-up you could have is like, what happened today? Well, googly eyes on lipsticks in Paris, right? But is that, do you measure that? The googly eyes? No. 
Because I personally am on TikTok, I think my team, maybe they would disagree. I think I'm more chill in that regard that I'm like, yeah, it's going to be fine. Like, I just want to maintain that conversation and presence and build a community on TikTok where we are able to engage in the conversation around beauty with both with creators, with those who are our followers, our fans. And that has worked. Is it non-traditional? Totally. Like, would another beauty brand do that? I don't know. They may not be as comfortable doing it. But you know what? It works. Why not try it? If it makes people smile. Do you think that that, that like, provides a level of stability? I know a handful of CMOs uh, around the industry. And one of them, uh, not one who's been on Decoder, just to, like, let her off the hook. Um, but one of them told me, this job is a total mercenary job, right? You come in, you've got six months to settle down. You've got a year to do stuff. And then the easiest thing the CEO can do to please the board is like flip the CMO so that someone else can try some other new stuff. And it was just, it felt to me like the most cynical read of like that job I could ever hear. But your read is very different, right? Is it because you're among the founding team? Is it because social marketing has that community aspect that makes things more resilient? Why do you think your approach is so different? Because I've definitely heard that before. It has a really good question. I understand that. I have seen that. I have heard that same sentiment. I have certainly read that sentiment. I love what I do. I love storytelling. I love community engagement. I love that the marketing mix has shifted so that we can do this sort of super non-traditional social, let's see what happens. Let's market to a bunch of different people. I love pushing the boundaries. That's what where I thrive in that environment. I'm more creative than a data-led person. I think maybe it's my personality. Maybe it's my background. I like to do stuff like that. So I am up for the challenge. May this not come back to haunt me one day. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me sweat a little bit. But yes, CMO is a tough role. I don't have my MBA. I didn't grow up as like an assistant brand manager that worked her way up. I grew up in public relations. I, I worked at Weber Shandwick for many, many years. I have sort of a different approach. And I don't like saying I this much, but I think because of that, I think of things in a different way that works in 2022, three. Yeah. Now, now what's going to happen in 25? I don't know. Which social platform will I be asking you about in 2025? Who knows? Be real. Be real. (laughs) Is that it? Is that your call? We'll come back. Well, I will come back to you in 2025 and, and we'll check on it. No, 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 not in 2025. That I don't know. Will we still be talking about Be Real in six months is the question. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. Are you on Be Real? I get the notifications and I'm like, you know what? I don't need anyone to know more about my life at this point in time. Because it's always, I always get the notification in the middle of like just the most boring shit. Like I don't need. Always. No one needs to know that this is happening right now. Like I'm staring at the window <laughs> being like, what's going to happen in five minutes? I'm like, this is not the, this is not the time. What are yours? My what are my, my B reels? Incredibly boring. Here I am in front of the computer screen. Here I am <laughs> exactly. on the Peloton bike. Here yeah. I am. Uh, yeah, like my life is. <laughs> I shouldn't say that out loud. My life is not that exciting. It's not like I'm. Oh, here I am on a hike or what? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm working. So here I am working. It's not like Selena Gomez is your boss or anything like that. It's still we still are. We're just working, selling yeah. lipsticks. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> here I am selling lipsticks. So it's a lot of that. No, but but I what I think is interesting about Be Real is it's that capture. There's something about you have to do it right then and there, this sort of urgency. Like if you're late, that's not a good thing. I think it's cool that you don't have the opportunity to filter, that you you it has to be what you're doing, that you have to quote unquote be real. I think the memes around it are hysterical. And I think it's interesting that my team, I watch them all like drop everything <laughs> for a be real. <laughs> But will they, someone posted, a friend of mine, Brendan posted that, I guess this time last year, Paparazzi, that app was super popular. And then of course, Clubhouse. So it's like, will it, will it wane? Yeah. I don't know. Our friend uh, Casey Newton calls them pop-up social networks. They come, they go, they don't develop a durable graph. Um, who knows? Okay. So I agree. But what's been interesting for me is watching my Gen Z team, watching them be so engaged. They weren't that engaged in the other ones, but this one they are. A couple of weeks ago, we had Hank Green on the show, and he was talking about the revenue models for YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, what have you. And his point was YouTube has this big rev share, so it enables all kinds of creators and whatever problems with YouTube exist, it at least enables all kinds of creators to find an audience. Instagram, without any rev share, basically only has a brand sponsorship model, right? A, an influencer marketing model, which means Instagram creators all just gravitated towards beauty because that was the money, and other kinds of things don't really flourish on Instagram. Now Instagram, I'm sure Instagram has been a huge part of your mix for years. Um, every beauty brand is is all over Instagram. Instagram is like blowing itself up, right? They're like, we're going to be TikTok now. Sorry, not sorry. Adam Masseri is going to apologize to you and then tell you that you still have to like clean your room. Is that affecting you? Or you're like, okay, I can see your Gen Z staff, your Gen Z customers, right? They're not on Facebook products the way that teenagers used to be. They're not on Instagram the way they used to be. Are you thinking, oh, I got to get ahead of that? Or are you following behind those trends? Uh, okay, this is a great question. So I would say that they are still on Instagram. And they are on TikTok. They're on all these platforms. Perhaps they're spending a little less time on one or the other. I'm not going to recommend stopping engaging or stopping creating content. It's the type of content that we do create. What's interesting is to see what we create and what works and what doesn't. And... How do you sort of speak the different languages of the platforms? Where it's going to fail is if you create one piece of content and just like slap it up on TikTok and Instagram and think that they're all going to be the same. That's not really gonna, going to always work. But we have found that some of the mental health content that we create, so we created, it's called the Rare Beauty Mental Health Council, and they are advisors within mental health, nonprofit, uh, academia, the medical field, all who help guide our strategy or help co-create content. We're a beauty brand. We sell lipsticks. We create lipsticks. <laughs> we can't offer, we're not the brand to dole out mental health advice, but we are the conduit to trusted resources. So we create educational content that can help destigmatize, that can help link people to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or Dr. Mark Brackett of Yale, et cetera. So what I think is interesting about Instagram is that that's where some of that content has been so highly engaged and saved and utilized and shared. And so I love that. So I think there is each of the social platforms is, I mean, we still have 3.3, 3.2 million followers on Instagram that are still engaged. We DM with our community. We, that's where we're able to see what they're posting. Like, I still love it all. Will it change? Of course. Are we going to know? No. Does that what keeps? Is that what's nerve wracking to me? Yes. But I try to stay on top of it. That's why I'm paying attention to Be Real and everything else. It's just you don't have to do every platform, but you certainly do need to explore them and understand them and figure it out. I think that that's one of the reasons why I got on TikTok in 2019 because I saw that my own personal 
myself, my attention was going to that platform so much that I thought, oh God, this is going to be, we got to figure this out and what works. I feel like I should tell, I, I, I've done you a disservice. Katie has a great TikTok. You should go look at her TikTok. But here's my question about your TikTok. It's maybe the only question I wanted to ask. What is it about TikTok that makes people talk to you from their car? Because you have car TikToks where you're like, here's a tip about being a CMAT. And it's like, you're in your car. Why? Why? Like, even me, like, I don't even have a TikTok. And I'm like, oh, I should go sit down in my car and talk to the audience. <laughs> like, there's something about TikTok that just makes people be like, the right place to shoot a video is in the front seat of my car sitting still. Well, my answer is, first of all, it's always pulled over because I, God knows, I only started driving when I moved out to LA. Brand safety guideline checklist number one. You're like, I'm pulled over. First and foremost, pull over, put the car in park. Um, It's usually because my schedule is so like, God, got to get to a meeting. Honest to God, I'm like, I got to get this done. I got to get this up. I pull over. I do it really quickly. <laughs> and then I and I post it. Now, others, I don't know. But there is quite a trend. And I think because I saw others doing it, I was like, okay, this is fine. I don't have to be like in front of a ring light in my kitchen. So that's how I do that. But for me, it's usually because I'm pulling into the office and I have to get it done before I go into a flurry of meetings. Yeah. I feel like there's a PhD thesis in car TikToks. Like there's something there that like the platform has decided people are going to be in their cars when they make TikToks and I, it's maybe everyone. People, yeah. It'd be interesting to see with the engagement, right? Like, is it something I know that sometimes when you walk or when you change angles or I heard, gosh, who was, that? I heard the Washington post team. Did they say that you have to change? Like if you change your angle or change your clip every few seconds, two seconds or something that it, it, it keeps your engagement. Obviously that's part of the algorithm is to keep people watching. So maybe that, but, uh, Honest truth, it's because of my schedule. <laughs> uh, well, I'm gonna, well, we've started making TikToks for Decoder. Maybe I got to get in the car. Maybe that's the move. We need to take a break, but when we come back, Katie's going to tell us if she prefers selling direct to consumer online or through retail. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words try. Explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. 
Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. You have said at the end of the day, I'm selling lipstick like five times now. Oh, oh no. Does that sound terrible? No, it's great. I mean, that's what you do, right? At the end of the day, all of you need to get paid. You got to sell the lipsticks. That's where the money comes from, I'm assuming, unless there's like some secret Selena slush fund that I don't know about. Not that I know of. That'd be great. That'd be breaking <laughs> news. If you want to say there's a Selena slush fund, this episode goes to the moon. But right, at the end of the day, all this stuff has to convert to sales. That probably still is the main metric you're thinking about. Where are you seeing more action? Is it in Sephora's? Is it in retail? Is it on the website? Do you push one or the other? Do you prefer one or the other? No offense to my chief digital officer who runs our e-com business. I love Sephora. We've launched around the world. And in fact, we just brought Selena to Sephora in France, Sephora in Italy. And then in, in the UK, there is no Sephora at this time, but there's a, we, we distribute through Space NK, which is an incredible retailer. So we brought Selena to London. She was able to meet the teams locally, see the gondola in store. They are such, both Space NK and Sephora are such incredible beauty powerhouses that to, to be there and to partner with them and to help them, that's a marketing channel in itself that to be able to have your brand message, whether it's in the windows of the in, of Sephora on the gondola, which is the merchandising unit, working with the beauty advisors to train them through and through to be able to talk about your product. It's a huge powerhouse and they are an incredible partner. But Sephora is like a different kind of competitive environment for marketing message, right? Like Glossiers now in Sephora. They've got their own. Not products. yet. No, very. Okay, he's like not yet. Are you trying to keep him out? Are you doing any under like back? I didn't say. Back, no, I'm just saying not yet. They haven't launched. I'm really curious. No, no. It's fine. You can be a shark. I'll, I'm really interested to see. Just, I'm curious to see how they launch. That'll be really interesting. Okay, so at some point they presumably will. They have announced it. I'm just saying that's a different environment for you to participate in. Do you have to tailor your marketing message to, okay, you're going to walk into a store. There's lots of products in there and we, we want you to pick ours versus you're scrolling TikTok. You see a trend, come to our website, hit the button, Apple pay looks at your face and you're, you're done. Sure. 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 Do you have to change your message? You modify it for where the message is. Absolutely. But yes and no. I mean, the wild thing about beauty and these beauty creators and the people who are starting the conversations about around beauty, they are also talking to the beauty advisors in Sephora. So let's say there was a trend on TikTok where people were taking our blush and the highlighter and mixing them together. It took off. People were going into, into Sephora to recreate that same trend, or the beauty advisors at Sephora were then recreating that same trend. So I pay attention to the trends that are happening on TikTok to see if that's something that we want to make sure people in Sephora are educated on that. Or... Is that a trend then that we could pitch to the Sephora team? Hey, could we do an email blast? Could we do a social post or something that recreates this TikTok trend that we're seeing? So it's really a, a two-way conversation. And then everything too, you're aligned around a product launch. So your messaging is still somewhat similar in each environment. Can you see if various trends on the social platforms or your marketing is driving sales in one channel versus another? So like this trend went viral on Instagram reels and suddenly sales on the website are up. And then this piece of content went viral on YouTube and that drove sales in the stores. Are you at that level of sophistication and tracking? Yeah. Well, is it from a tracking mechanism or is it just, we just see the results? Like for instance, 
a couple, maybe it's like two or three creators at the same time talked about, it's called our Always an Optimist 4-in-1 Mist. It's a setting spray. And it dropped. It was on maybe like a low, one of the lower skews, a great skew, but maybe not as a top seller. And the next thing you know, it, it skyrocketed to the top. And, and, I, and I know for a fact that it was, in fact, the TikTok, the beauty creators who were talking about it because no one else was talking about it. We hadn't done an email blast. It was organic. They just started talking about it. So we do pay very close attention to our sales by skew versus what people are talking to to see if we can track any of that. So if it is something that's either A, oh, oh my goodness, we've got to look at inventory or B, is this a trend or something that we can leverage like the blush and highlighter moment? Yeah. So you saw a physical product. I get a lot of software CEOs on the show. So it's fun to talk to somebody who's like sells atoms, not bits, you know, do you think, okay, we've got a lot of inventory. We have another drop come in down the line. We got to clear out the shelves. We're going to do traditional marketing stuff like discounts or promotions. Is that different for you in a world where you're doing primarily social marketing or is it still kind of the same moves expressed through different channels? We have not done promotions yet to that level. We're still, we're only two years in. At other brands, have I done that? Yeah. Yeah, you can. But is it a different playbook in the in the social world versus the traditional retailer world? Mm, not really. I mean, I guess you could you could come up with now say a, a promotion, a markdown, a mark is a markdown. <laughs> kind of speaks for itself. One thing that I'm really curious about on the direct-to-consumer side, on the website side, mm-hmm. I've heard from so many direct-to-consumer brands. We had a whole business where we were converting against targeted advertising, Facebook, Google, whatever. Apple hit the button, right? The uh, app tracking transparency button. It destroyed Facebook's business in a very real way. Um, mm-hmm. And Facebook is out there saying, you're killing small businesses. But because they're Facebook slash meta, everyone's like, who cares about you? But it is true that the small businesses were hurt by this, right? Their ability to track sales through those ads decreased. Their ability to convert through those ads decreased. Have you felt that too? We don't have a, such a reliance on our ads that we haven't felt it. Is that because your audience isn't on that platform, right? It isn't on Facebook in that way? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I think our mix is so balanced. I think our marketing mix is pretty healthy. It's just we're just not solely relying on that one channel. So if that one isn't working or maybe the days of seeing an Instagram ad or a Facebook ad and then buying it and like converting immediately, maybe those days are over. But maybe they're seeing the ad and then they're seeing it in Sephora and then they're getting an email. Maybe they just have to see it a couple times before they actually convert. And maybe it's a little bit tougher now that there are so many instances of recommendation or like points along the consumer journey that actually could make that. I don't know if you can sort of attribute to Instagram or Facebook as much, but it's, I think it's still important to think through, okay, it's all about that message or that point of view, or, or what are we putting out there to help convert eventually? But because we weren't so reliant on it from the beginning, it's been okay. But we've really sort of thought about making it a little bit more balanced. That's why we rely so much on the earned and our own stuff. We have to take another break, but when we come back, Katie's going to talk about Rare Beauty's marketing funnel. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. 
Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder. All lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Katie Welch. Way at the top of the show, you mentioned the the word funnel. You were talking about the traditional marketing funnel of awareness, interest, desire, and then action, which is the sale. It feels like you have a very different idea of what the rare beauty funnel is. What does your funnel look like? Well, I think we're starting from a different spot. We have such a highly engaged, large social fan base ourselves. Plus, obviously, Selena, someone once said to me, oh, you guys just have Selena posts and then people buy your products. And Selena has incredible engagement. Her fan base is so kind and wonderful, but I think it's truly, it's the mix. So it's what does she want to post? What makes sense from her that she wants to talk about a product? But that obviously she reaches a very large amount of people, but it's that plus. And so we sort of, if we just think even from all of our owned channels as a large base right there, how do we leverage that to then what's the rest of it? But do you think that it's like the first thing I have to do is just make people aware of this? Or is it we can get that because Selena Gomez has a huge presence? No. I mean, oof. if people were only aware that Selena Gomez had a beauty brand, that wouldn't do anything. We, there's so many other things that I think you have to prove product performance. You have to show that the brand has values and a different point of view. You have to talk to the really highly engaged community and super fans first. So even if you were just like, hey, look, there's a product by Selena Gomez, I don't think people would necessarily buy it right away. There's a lot of other elements that go into it. And maybe some other brands do just that or assume that they can just rely on that. But not for this customer. This In this day and age, I think people are, um, they want to know, they want to research products. That's why the creator community is so important. But it all starts with the product. You have to have a great product. So if we didn't have a good product, like, all the marketing in the world, it wouldn't matter. Do you, when you become a CMO, does someone hand you that line to say, because everyone, it's, it's like all of you. No. Do they, does everyone say that? Oh, it's, it's amazing. Really? Because I yeah. think we've all been in those positions where you're like, holy shit, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work. It's true. So it's true. And again, you can't just force the message on people. So someone's going to come out and say, you know what? I actually don't really like that product. And you're like, uh, how do I turn that around? So that's so, a, that's a hard moment, right? I, I think we've all seen that moment when a product comes out, it doesn't live up to the hype. It 
doesn't meet expectations yeah. or there's an unfair piece of coverage and things go sideways. Maybe not for rare beauty, but how do you react to those moments? What's your strategy for that? It depends on what the concern is. And it could be, are they using it the wrong way? Is there a way we can educate on something? I remember I worked years ago, uh, a product, people were actually just putting too much on their face and it was just not wearing well because they were, it was just too much. And so we created a ton of content on, okay, a little bit goes a long way, changed the messaging, worked with creators to get that word out. And so sometimes it just depends on what the issue is. And so maybe that you can sort of turn that ship around, but hopefully you can think through that all before it launches. But it happens. My goodness. Yeah. Do you think that that content is advertising? Do you think of it that way? Like some things are ads and some things are content or is it all advertising in your head? Even if it's just like of something on our Instagram or on our own YouTube, like our own YouTube channel, do I think that's advertising? Or marketing. I I mean, there's there's like a very technical split between those two terms and I'll, I'll grant it to you. But like it's all messages from a brand, right? For sure. It's all marketing. And yeah, I'm not going to pretend it's not. And I think people know. I think what's interesting is people turn to the brand for some of that stuff, how to use a product. So let's just make sure you have it. You have all of those resources for your consumer if they want that to find it on your YouTube or if they want to find it elsewhere. I think you, you have to do the do the consumer the service of having it all there. And yeah, it's marketing. It wouldn't be smart to launch a product like without anything else. Do you have an outside agency? Do you have an, a regular ad agency? Is that something you consider? Um, When we launched, we worked with an agency because our creative team wasn't fully staffed yet. But no, everything is in-house at this point. Do you ever think you need an agency to do things like make TV ads or advertise in the Super Bowl or something? No. Maybe. Not yet. Do you even think about TV as a channel for your messages? Is that just... When we launched, we did uh, addressable TV. I think addressable TV is really interesting. Uh, We had some success with it. It's something that we talk about a lot. But... Right now, we're so digital, digital focused. That's where she is. They are. Addressable TV, if you don't know, is when a streamer like Hulu has targeted ad slots that you can buy. And, and you're saying, actually, our customers aren't even watching TV that way. I don't know. That's not true. That's not true. I don't, I don't know that for a fact. At this point, do we have the marketing dollars to make a true impact to do addressable TV where we can really do it the right way? Because I'm, I'm watching it closely. We did addressable TV at launch. It performed. But it was in the mix of everything else where everyone was talking about the launch of Rare Beauty. So it's tough to sort of say, okay, yeah, that that did it. But I do want to try it again. So we're talking about it for next year. But we'll do the creative in-house probably. You and I are talking, I don't know, a day after Disney said there'd be an ad-supported Disney Plus, a couple weeks after Netflix said there'd be ad-supported Netflix. Does that change your view? Okay, I'm going to get some different kinds of addressable TV platforms with a different content mix maybe a a younger consumer? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's definitely something to consider. Do you think you would run like standard looking TV spots there or is that an opportunity to do something else completely? I think it's an opportunity to do something else completely. What do you think that is? Well, you know, we have so much, I don't know. I don't know. And I think it's, so it depends on who your audience is. It depends on where you're running it. It depends on the type of content they're consuming. But if there is like a TikTok type content, that's maybe more demonstrable of the pro- like how the product works or shows something that really keeps you highly engaged and it's 15 seconds and that could possibly work and we've seen it work on TikTok maybe that could be interesting or it could be a more traditional type of spot something that uses our fa- you know where Selena stars in it or 
she, you know, uses her voice or one of her songs. Sure, that's all possible. What I think is interesting, though, is like, what's going to get someone back in to watch, like, out of the kitchen into the TV room, like, to watch the TV? What if it was, like, a really great before and after of a mascara that sort of was inspired by something on TikTok? That could work. Do you have access to, like, Selena Gomez, the library and assets? Like, if you want to use one of her songs, is that a phone call or is that the same kind of licensing conversation if it was some other uh, musician? It's still a licensing conversation because she still has the, you know, it's the the writers, the everything that's involved. I don't know is if it, I can talk about that. <laughs> that's on you. That's on me. <laughs> but yeah, it's all, it's all. <laughs> okay, we edit that part out of me whispering to you. <laughs> um, no, it's all the same. It's fine. I can talk about it. But no, it's all the, um, it's the same. This to me is like Selena is in many ways your, your biggest asset in terms of marketing, right? She's a celebrity with a huge platform, but it seems like it's her idea. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her. Do you have conversations where like we should use the songs more? Cause that, if, it, if I was in this job, I'd be like, you have hit songs. We should just use the songs in all the ads. Or is it actually, it's kind of harder because now we have to ask you for a favor to go into your library and do all this licensing work. It all just, it just depends. We use the song. Well, I mean, the brand is based off of her song Rare and her album Rare. So that's, she first sort of fell in love with that word. Uh, so we use the song Rare all the time. Selena herself has been very vocal about online harassment. It's bad. The Verge, very vocal about online harassment being bad. I appreciate that about her. Having a marketing platform that's really built on online communities, we have talked about it as, as though it allows you to be stable, right? You're like weathering the storm. You're not part of the Facebook app tracking transparency disaster that's happening to other people, right? You're, you're chill about sort of conversions at scale because everything is growing. The flip side is that online platforms and communities can like get out of hand. Do you have in the back of your head, like the 911 lever that's like, this is out of hand. We got to run this playbook. What's been interesting about community is our community team, myself, we've gotten to know some of the more vocal people, some of the, our bigger fans. We've gotten to know them, whether we've met them in person at, let's say, an event, or we've done a Zoom call with them and these things that we call rare chats. First and foremost, nothing's ever gotten out of hand. Knock on wood. Oh, my gosh. I don't even like saying it. May it never happen. <laughs> but I would think that what we would do is sort of turn to the, the people who we, we kind of call our friends or friends of the brand because we have those relationships with them and maybe get their insight or understand what happened or see if they can help navigate whatever's happening. It's so nuanced in whatever that situation could be. It just depends on what the situation is. But for the most part, everyone's pretty kind. Like they're all really not. I worry about that. I worry about a lot of it. It is. You're you're 100% right. You worry about something. You put something up on Instagram and is someone going to say something rude about whomever's in the post because it happens in other channels. And I, and I have not seen it. And I just feel like the community is really a kind group and we sort of just don't allow for it. Do you feel the sort of like social pressure that I see other celebrities face all the time? Like you said a wrong word and now everyone's going to yell at you and you got to like back it up and you got to re-edit the album. And like maybe the word was the wrong word and maybe that was the right choice. But you, you see that the way the pressure is applied just comes with a lot of the baggage of online harassment. Is that something that you think about? Like, oh, we've got to make sure that every piece of content passes this threshold of awareness before it can go out. I think you just try to do the right thing as much as you can and do the best that you can. And so much of that is 
it's just paying attention. But my goodness, we're all human. People make mistakes. We're not robots. And I think if something were to happen, you're transparent and you apologize and you, and you fix it the best you can. But sure, we think about everything. You think about, you, you just try to be as respectful and as kind as you can to the community so that you, what you say, what you post, what you share doesn't make someone feel bad because that's not what we want to do. There are some brands in this world that I think will probably never think about online communities as affecting their behavior. Uh, Lockheed Martin, I'm sure, does not care what, what is happening on Twitter. Beauty brands seem like they have to care a lot, right? They're all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Like it's kind of a reputational product as much as a functional product. The function has to be there, as you've been saying this whole time. It's got to be good. But then the sales are made through kind of like reputation, brand values, all the other stuff you've been talking about. Do you feel like you've ceded control of that to the online community in any way? Like when I say Lockheed Martin doesn't care, like they're just going to be Lockheed. Boeing is just going to be Boeing every day of Boeing's life. And that's the end of that. But you've like handed over a huge part of your brand success to like a group of people that you have some amount of control over, maybe some influence over. But at the end of the day, you, you have no control over. <sighs> I mean, that's the world we live in. So that's why we make decisions with community in mind so that we are creating content that's beneficial for them. We're putting out words and visuals that makes them feel good about themselves. It sparks a positive conversation around self-worth. We think about it. You have to think about it. It's the right thing to think. I like thinking about it. Sure, it's another layer of complexity, but you have to. I guess certain beauty brands certainly could and just put stuff out there and just, it just depends on the approach, your approach as a brand. You've mentioned Gen Z a bunch of times. Do you think that you're going to stay focused on younger consumers over time, or do you think you're going to build this cohort and grow up with them? I don't know. That's a great question. It's too, I don't know yet. Because that, that to me is like when the brands have to, they can stop caring about online because they have their customers, right? Like they're just going to keep going because there's a lot of loyalty there over time. Yeah. I don't know. Beauty is tough. People um, are not always super loyal. So I would like to foster a relationship with with all sorts of every generation and figure out how we do that. That makes the job so much more difficult. What's your boomer marketing strategy for rare beauty? Moms. <laughs> yeah, but the moms are not boomers anymore. All right. Oh, God. You're right. <laughs> Just my mom. Don't don't you dare call me a boomer. (laughs) Let me be young. Let me be young. Okay? I'm Gen X. Can I still pretend? Oh, I think that Gen X and Gen Z, I think we vibe in a very serious way. Yeah. We're the letters. We're good. You're right. What is your boomer strategy? Okay, maybe we don't have it. Grandma's. (laughs) Well, I'm just wondering. Like, you know, at, at some point you're like, I don't have time to make this set of decisions anymore. These are my brands. And I'm going to like do all the other stuff I need to do to like keep my kids alive or whatever. Right. I mean, I think what's interesting about social, it's not so much as a demographic as it is a psychographic. So it's like if someone's interested in beauty content or content that's more around self-worth or mental health or mental well-being, like with something like a TikTok, that content might show up in their feed. So and sometimes we'll work with creators that are of different ages, maybe boomers. I'm laugh. I'm still laughing. That's really funny. You're going to come back on the show in 2025 and we're going to see what happened to Be Real. And I'm going to be like, what happened with your boomer marketing strategy? It's going to be great. It's going to be the best episode of Decoder ever. Put it, Creighton's putting it on the books I was right just now. Thinking about, I was just thinking about my own mom. <laughs> <laughs> she has always bought the brand. Is she like a, is she like a rare, oh, she, she's bought your brand. So she's like in it. 
Yeah, whatever, wherever I'm working, sure. Is she doing like the full <laughs> euphoria looks? No. <laughs> <laughs> you must know. That would be a TikTok channel I'd watch. <laughs> Should we do that? I mean, I look, I'm not a TikTok expert, but I feel like people, that one would go super viral. Wait, will Talk you about a TikTok edit that, that part out? You're not going to. First of all, I know you're not going to. <laughs> it, I just went straight. I just answered from my gut, not like from a talking point. <laughs> That's why you're here. Uh, all right. We'll let you off the hook easy. What's next? For, well, what's next for Rare Beauty? You've given us so much time. I know you got an out. What's next for Rare Beauty? Well, we just launched a collection of lipsticks. See, we're here to sell lipstick. We're here to sell lipstick. By the way, I look great in eyeliner. Uh, so if you ever want to send me some samples, I heard. I think I can take. I them. heard. We have. A, I heard because you're a big Cure fan. Is what, <laughs> what I was told. Oh my god, my team completely doxed me. <laughs> was that true? Was that true? Super true. Super true. Oh yeah, me and Robert That's Smith. That's awesome. It's a real, a real situation. Wait, are you are you joking? Because Robert Smith wears eyeliner, and you decided to wear eyeliner once, or are you truly a Cure fan? No, I'm saying that I spent my teens and 20s like fully kitted out like all the time. I love that. I saw the curate at uh, Austin City Limits a couple years ago. I told them that. They're like a really loud band for being a bunch of old guys. Like that's like a rock show. Anyway, now we're just talking yeah, about the cure. What's is, next for okay, Rare Beauty? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me rewind. What's your boomer strategy? Two words, Robert Smith. There you go. I know Selena has to be a cure fan. That's, I feel that in my bones that she's a cure fan. Can you make this happen? You feel it in your bones. Sure, yeah. I mean, I've listened to her music. There's some influences there that are very clear. Here's the deal we're going to make. You yeah. edit this so I don't sound like a dumb dumb. Okay. And I'll do a Robert Smith eyeliner. Mm -hmm. Done. That's it. That's mm -hmm. Decoder. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> Is that the way we're going to end this? I think it should be. I don't think there's a better <laughs> way to end it. Creighton, what about... <laughs> yeah, he's good. All right. Katie, that was honestly, that was amazing. Thank you so much for being on. Are you lying to me? No, that was great. Thanks again to Katie Welch for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have noticed, if you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott, and it was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 